Well, we have been going through um, the, the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in this book for a while. And um, today we come to our next passage in the book of Acts, but to just kind of remind us where we've been. Um, up to this point in chapter 4, we have seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the early church. Um, crazy things have been happening, one of which, not least of which, is that awkward, bumbling Peter, who is perpetually putting his foot in his mouth uh, in the Gospels, has become a great evangelist of the church. And, and as a result of his preaching, thousands of people have come to the Lord. And God is performing all sorts of miracles and healings through the apostles. And multiple times, Luke has described the unique and the beautiful quality of the fellowship of the believers, that they have everything in common, that no one is in need, because as soon as the need arises, one within their midst meets that need. And there's a, a unique and beautiful quality to the prayer life and the worship life of the early church. So all of this is just representative of the fact that the Spirit is just moving. And the people of God are listening. They're receptive to hear what the Spirit is doing, and then they're responding. So to this point, we have seen the church in a very positive light in these first few chapters of the book of Acts. Things have been going well. Um, people have been flooding into the church. But now, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Luke records an instance when sin shows up. And we should not be surprised because the church is made up of human beings like you and me, and we're sinners. And so Luke reminds us of that in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And this is how Satan operates, right? As soon as the spirit begins to work within a community, within an individual, as soon as you feel like you're heading in the right direction and, you know, you're on fire for the Lord, that is the moment that you begin to experience that attack, right? And maybe you've experienced that in your own life, that you finally feel like you're on fire for the Lord, and then things just start slamming you. That is the attack of the evil one in your life, because the last thing that he wants to see happen is for you to be on fire for the Lord. And so we see that happen now in the story of the early church. We're going we're gonna to read it in a moment here, but as we listen to the, today's passage, I want us to be asking two different questions of the passage. What do we learn about God in this story? And then what do we learn about the calling of the church? And this is a disconcerting passage, all right? So what do we learn about God? And what do we learn about the calling of the church? Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your presence with us. We are grateful that you are always talking, that you have a word for us always. And today in this moment, we thank you for the fact that if we quiet ourselves, participate in that practice of listening, that we will, in fact, hear you. Lord, give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning in this passage. Soften our hearts to receive the message that you are offering to us. And we ask that through this process, Lord, that we would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this should be on the screen behind me. Um, I'm going to begin reading verse 32 of chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this might sound familiar. It's because this is a very similar passage to what we've already read earlier in chapter 2. Luke is again just describing the, the unique character of the community. He goes on to give us a specific example here. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph is a good example of what it is like to live generously, to live as a part of the community. And now we get the bad example, Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Mark has been the one assigning the passages that we're preaching on here. So I, I two weeks ago, was at a school for spiritual direction, and um, we are learning kind of about the Jesuit way of um, faith. And so I had a Jesuit priest who was doing a lot of the teaching, and his encouragement for, as he described the role of the spiritual director as helping individuals to see grace in their life. And I was like, yes, I can do that. You know, I can sit with people and I can help tease out the grace in their lives. And so I came back from that retreat and I just was like, I'm swimming in a sea of grace. And then I open up my Bible to see what I'm going to be preaching on next. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is not what I want to preach on. Let's, let's find some of that grace. And I was pretty tempted to just turn it right back over to Mark and be like, going to give this one to you, buddy. 
but I didn't. And I spent some time and I've sat with this passage. And uh, so we're going to see what the Lord has to say this morning. So the, the question that came to me as I, you know, began reflecting on this is just why is God so harsh in this account? I mean, this is the kind of story that turns people away from the church, right? These are the stories that lodge in their minds about the character of God that makes them be like, if this is who God is, I want nothing to do with him. <clears throat> and yet, this passage is recorded in Scripture right along the passages that talk about God as love that talk about the grace of God and the mercy of God. We're going to sing Amazing Grace later. And so somehow there is a consistency in this passage and those truths. And so we have to sit with it all and figure out what the heck is going on here. Why is God so harsh here if he is also loving and gracious and merciful? Well, one thing that is important, vital, critical for us to hear this morning is that this is not the normative way that God operates, all right? This is not the norm. When you sin, he is not going to smote you. Yes, he has done that at times. That is not the normative way that God operates, all right? So there is something particular that is happening here. So what is it? Well, we have to remember that this is literally the birth of the church that we are reading about here. In verse 511, in this passage that I've just read, um, Luke refers to the gathering of believers as church for the first time. All right? So this is an incredibly formative period in world history. And so in this moment, God is laying down expectations for what his particular unique community in the world is to be like. He's setting expectations. And so he has to be very clear. If any of you are parents, if any of you have been a child, <laughs> you know that with young kids, nuance is just completely lost, right? Black and white is the way to go with young children. Yes or no right? Yes or no. God is setting expectations here for his baby church, and he needs them to understand that sin has no part of the body of Christ, that it cannot exist in his people if he is going to accomplish what he wants to do through his people. And he's incredibly clear here. And if we look back over the history that we see in the Old Testament, this is not the first time that God has operated this way. At the beginning of God's people, just as they are coming into the promised land, we have another story, the story of Achan. This is in Joshua chapter 7. They have just um, ransacked the city of Jericho. They've conquered it in the name of the Lord as they're entering into the promised land. And Achan goes and steals some of the um, stuff that has been taken and set aside for the Lord. Achan steals it and he buries it in his tent. And when God seeks him out, Achan ends up being killed as a consequence for his sin. Now, again, this is not normative for how God functions, nor is it normative for how God wants us to function as we encounter sin. But in that situation, it's the beginning of the people of God. He's, he's just setting them up as a nation, ser 
serving him as their king, and he needs them then to understand sin has no part of what I am trying to do here. You are to be different. You are called out. You are holy. I am going to be light to the world through you. All right? So this is not normative for the way that God deals with sin, but it drives home a point, and that is that God takes sin seriously. And he takes sin seriously because of the incredibly destructive effect of sin in our lives and in the world. So Ananias and Sapphira, bummer to be them, for sure. They wanted to receive the same praise and the same goodwill that Barnabas had received. He sold this land, he gave it to the church, and his name was praised. He was nicknamed Son of Encouragement for the rest of eternity. They wanted that prestige. They wanted that privilege. But they didn't want to pay the price that he paid to get it. And so they tell a lie. They sell, they sell some property, and they hold some back. And yet say that they have given it all. So their sin is the dishonesty. as Not the holding back. It's that they were dishonest and said that they had given their all. Well, this is a scary story. It's a scary story for me as I read it because I can picture myself doing something like this, fudging just a bit in order to make myself look better, right? Puffing myself up by exaggerating my story just a bit. As I was reading this week, preparing for this morning, I came across a story by Ajith Fernando. He um, is one of the high-ups, or was one of the high-ups in Youth for Christ. And he tells a story of a talk that he would give every year to the Youth for Christ workers as they would kind of be beginning their work. And he would tell them that in Youth for Christ, we don't expect everyone to be perfect because you are human beings, and human beings are sinners. We expect you to make mistakes, and that's okay. We will work through it. What I cannot abide by in Youth for Christ is liars. If you make a mistake, it's okay. But I need you to own up to it. Because lying is a hindrance to God being able to work through you. Mistakes are okay. Lying about it is not okay. Now this is a conversation that we have begun having in our household because we have young children. And for many years, there was just complete honesty all of the time, right? Because they didn't even know to be guilty when they did something wrong. But Alistair is old enough now to understand. And so we've begun encountering some lying. And we've tried to be very gentle with him, but also very firm when we discover a lie. That, buddy, it is okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to lie about it. We need you to be honest. And as parents, we understand that that lying is not okay. We have to root lying out. Now, we look at this story, and, and there's definitely shock at the consequences for what seems to us like a relatively minor white lie. There are many things that we might have been able to be like, oh, okay, I guess that's why you did that, God. But a white lie seems like an overreaction. 
And yet our reaction of shock also reveals something about us, doesn't it? It highlights that we have bought into a lie from Satan that sin is not that bad. We tell ourselves this lie all of the time as rationalization and justification for the little sins that we commit throughout our day, whatever that might be, the bad attitude, the snarky response to the person driving. Um, We do it all of the time. We justify the little sins that we like to commit. But the truth is that sin in the church has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with decisively and quickly because sin is a big deal. And it's not comfortable for me to preach this sermon because I want to be all about grace. But sin is serious. And if we don't confront sin, then we enable it. And there's nothing that kind of brings us face-to-face with the reality of that than the world that we are living in today, the Me Too movement. You think about any one of the news stories and the fact that way back at the beginning of that story, somebody knew something and they turned the other way. They didn't confront it. They didn't deal with it decisively and quickly. And so one sin led to another, and it got bigger and bigger until suddenly we have international headlines. Little sins don't stay little. As much as we want to hope and think that I'm strong enough, that this, my little pet sin is just going to stay my little pet sin, they don't. Those cute little baby cubs grow up to be big bears, and they're going to eat you. Sin is a big deal because sin cuts us off from one another. Sin cuts us off from God. And each one of these severings is a little death that in time kills us. Paul is crystal clear in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And yet, God's crazy plan is to work through you and me, to work through this gaggle of of human beings to be his salt and light in the world, to bring about the redemption, not just of these people here, but all things, all things, all things. But that means that we need to not be dead ourselves, right? And in order to not be dead ourselves, when we experience sin in ourselves, when we experience sin in this community, We have to be willing to address it quickly and decisively. Because if we don't, that sin is going to kill us. And we don't like to believe that. I was scrolling through Facebook. And I don't know about you, my phone is suddenly telling me how many hours I've been on my phone. Does yours do that now? Talk about convicting, folks. Woo! I was scrolling through Facebook. And a friend posted that he had just gone in for his annual dermatology check and found uh, a spot. And the doctor removed it, and they biopsied it. And they had him come back in, and they cut out a great big chunk because that spot was cancerous melanoma. They dealt with it quickly. They dealt with it decisively. And none of us question that when it's cancer. Friends, sin is cancer. 
it is as deadly to us as that spot on our leg that we're ignoring. (laughs) And just like we cut cancer out decisively and quickly, we need to be willing to do the same thing when we encounter sin in our own lives and when we encounter sin in our community. But how do we do this? And how do we do this in a way that doesn't lead to shame in ourselves, in others, that doesn't just send folks out of the church never to return again? Because we all have had experience with that kind of discipline. And so it's scary, right? As a pastor here, I don't want to confront sin because I, I don't want you guys to leave, <laughs> right? I don't want to be that thing that damages you for the rest of your life and makes you walk away from the Lord. And yet, I trust and I believe there are ways that we can be quick and decisive in addressing sin that is also gracious and loving. So just a few thoughts. These are not original. Sin has to be dealt with immediately and decisively, all right? If we let it go, it grows and it gets harder. Quickly and decisively. And as we address sin, whether it's in ourselves, whether it's in someone that we're in community with, it has to be done in love, right? The image that keeps coming to me is uh, as a parent disciplines a child. And again, some of you have, have poor relationships with your parents, and so that's a bad example. But it's the best that I could come up with, all right? As I parent my children, I love them with all my heart. And the reason that I discipline them is because I want them to be better. I want life to go well for them. I want to help them to grow up to be strong, healthy human beings. And so as I encounter something that's wrong, we address it quickly, but we do it with love, without any shame. It's very matter of fact, and then we move on. Now, when we talk about church discipline, you know, there are so many things that come to our mind. And, um, I, I mean, I, I kind of hate the idea of church discipline. But I think part of that is because my, what comes to my mind are these, are these stories of shame where someone has been drug out in front of the congregation and just slayed because of their sin. That's not the way to do it, all right? One of the commentaries that I read this week suggested that you should begin at the lowest, smallest level, all right? So if a sin is a secret sin, it should be dealt with secretly, if at all possible. If it's a private sin, it should be dealt with privately, if at all possible. If it's a public sin, then it needs to be dealt with publicly. But deal with it at the level that it is. Don't shame the person. And we see this in scripture, Matthew 18. Begin by addressing it just between the two of you. If you can't resolve it there, bring a couple of brothers along, a couple of sisters along, and have that conversation. And if that doesn't resolve it, then bring it to the community. And if that still can't resolve it, then it says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that has been misused over and over again, right? How do we treat a pagan or a tax collector? We love them, right? These are our neighbors. These are the people that we long to see come into the church to have a relationship with Jesus. We don't shun them. We don't shame them. We love them. All right? You confront the sin quickly and decisively. If the person doesn't repent, we love them. 
as we confront sin, we do it with humility, recognizing that even as I call something out in you, I am just as big a sinner, right? I need to deal with the, the log in my own eye before I deal with the splinter in yours. We need to do this with humility. And we need to do it with clarity that we don't expect one another to be perfect. You don't have to feel shame when someone brings to your attention something that you have done wrong. Because we're human beings, folks. No one expects us to be different. You shouldn't be expected to be perfect. But don't lie about it. When someone comes to you, accept it. And then both parties need to move on. It's done. It's behind us. Now we move forward with love and grace. And we do that because we serve a God who is loving and is gracious. We can do all of this without fear because we serve a God who is loving and is gracious, who has been quick to forgive, who has paid the price for it all. So we don't have to carry that cross anymore. We can lay it down. We can move on. And I trust that the result of this, if if we as a community can live this way, can call one another to a higher place, can address the sin that exists lovingly and then move on, is that more and more men and women would flood into the church because they are compelled by the beauty of what they see, the authenticity, the realness, not the perfection, but the grace and the love, just as they flooded into the early church. We're going to come to the table now, and this is a table that reminds us of the great love of God who gave his all for us, who paid the price for everything that we have done and will do so that we don't have to carry that any longer. So if there is something that you are carrying today, something that is heavy on your heart, a sin that you've not laid down yet, as you come today to the table, I invite you to picture yourself carrying that and laying it down. And friends, receive the truth that you are forgiven. As you walk away, walk away light, knowing that God loves you and all is forgiven. Let's pray, and then Tammy is going to assist me in serving. Heavenly Father, this is a hard story for us to read. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see the heart of what you are communicating in this story given to us in Scripture. That you do take sin seriously because sin is a cancer that is eating us alive. And yet we can be free of it. We can lay it down because you have taken it. So Lord, give us the courage to confront the own sin within our own hearts. Give us courage to confront the sin lovingly with our brothers and sisters so that we could experience your grace and so that the world around us could experience this community as a community that is rich in grace and authenticity and love. Lord, thank you for loving us. Amen.